Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm, uh, I feel happy that um, I'm on the phone with Robin Wall Kimmerer. She is a mother, a scientist, a decorated professor, an enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. Her first book, Gathering Moss, was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for Outstanding Nature Writing. Her writings have appeared in Orion, Hold Terrain, and numerous scientific journals. She lives in Fabius, New York, where she is a SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology and the founder and director of the Center for Native People and the Environment. I have been in a relationship with her latest book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. And I mean it when I say in a relationship It's, to me, a book uh, that I pick up and then I am in a prayer, in this book, in a prayer. So I'm glad that all our friends who are listening um, can partake in this privilege. So, uh, Robin, did I leave anything out on your biography, autobi- your biography that you'd like to say? I think the only thing I would add to your gracious words is that I am a plant woman. That I was born a botanist. The plants have been my guides and my teachers my whole life, and and so to. Um, to think of being introduced without relationships to plants, it seems more whole to add that, that they are my, my wisest teachers. Wow. And may I ask what you feel is the deepest thing that you've learned from plant world? What a difficult question to answer. There are so many things. Um, and the and that so manyness is really tied up, I suppose, with their teachings in that plants to me are amazing as individuals. They're a wellspring of creativity and you know, ways to help us imagine um, what life might be like. And so in the whole diversity of ways of being green, of ways of being a plant, I think that's one of their, to me, one of their most important teachings is give your gift to recognize that every living being 
has a unique gift and that you need to give it for the well-being of the world and that it's important to be different in this world where there are so many pressures to have us all conform to particular standards. Plants don't do that, and I think they teach us that by being different, by by sharing whatever our particular gift is with the world, that um, that all becomes part of the of the greater good. Tell us about, uh, if you wish, about sweetgrass. The title of your book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Sweetgrass is um, in our language, in the um, Anishinaabemo, in our, our language, we call it Wingashk uh, is the name of it. And when I asked my elder, Stuart King, what that meant beyond this beautiful, shining grass, he said that in that word is a, um, a nod to the sweet kind of vanilla fragrance of the grass. In that word is a is a thinking about where it lives in these open, wet, sedge kind of meadows, and also built into that word is an invitation to ceremony and an invitation to gratitude, to prayer, to kindness. All of that in in the name of of sweetgrass. In um, when Linnaeus gave it its scientific name. I think he must have been talking to our people because its scientific name, which is Hierochloe odorata, translates as the sacred, fragrant, holy grass. Wow, yes. I love in your book, amongst other things, the, um, the description of your relationship with the pond, with the pond on your, on your property. And you say something that fascinated me at some point. You say, where does one's responsibility in one lifetime begin and end? What is our responsibility to the land in one lifetime? Could you speak about that? I'd love to because it's something I wrestle with every day, as probably most of us do in a in a mindful way. It really came um, to my mind, especially in the story about the pond, because I spent so many years, so much effort and imagination to say nothing of backbreaking work to try to uh, restore this old farm pond and and bring it back to health. And when I started to count the hours and the years, really, that I had spent working on that pond, it it brought to mind that whole question of, is my responsibility to this pond, but my pond drains to a creek, which drains to a river, which drains to a really polluted landscape. Where does my responsibility end? I can Mm -hmm. try to heal this small pond, Mm -hmm. but... um, really, um, there's so much more healing to do. And so that question of scale of how do we invest our gifts uh, is, is, is always very much on my mind. And I think that's one of the reasons I turned to story, because story is kind of transcends scale. Story is, is small and intimate between you and the listener like a relationship between you and a pond and a shovel, but it, stories also can transcend those boundaries and, and do a, a bigger job of healing, I hope, anyway. 
Well, in this theme of uh, continuity and uh, where our lives begin and end, I was just um, thinking about grief. What have you learned? Because in observing the plant world, you see that things come and go and come back. Um, what have you learned about uh, human grief in your relationship to plant world? For me, the grief which is associated with loss is also tied up with renewal. To me, that is where comfort lies in the understanding that when we are kinfolk to everything that is in a in a deeply material way, um, as well as a, as a, a transcendent spiritual way, um, that there really is no loss. Everything moves in a circle, as we know, both biophysically and 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 uh, spiritually, metaphysically, um, and so. To me, seeing the constancy of of renewal that that plants teach us daily um, is is a source of of comfort. And in that, to that end, I think and would recommend um, if you've not read it, have you have you seen Kathleen Dean Moore's beautiful book called Wild Comfort? No, but I'll write it down immediately. Yes, it's, it's quite a wonderful book, which which speaks so much more eloquently to the question you pose than I ever can. Thank you, thank you. So, um, please speak to us about how you teach reciprocity with the land and how you bring reciprocity with the land into the university and your teachings. I try to do this by actually by letting the plants do the teaching. Uh, sometimes I think the best teacher really just becomes a translator from um, from the land and for translator translator from the plants themselves. But the teachings of reciprocity, that um, the give and take of the world, is so fundamental to the whole science of ecology. Um, that when I teach ecology, either in the classroom or out on the land, I always try to show to my students uh, this balance, that for everything that we are given, we then have to return something as well. You know, in, in system science, we simply refer to that as negative feedback loops, right? Negative feedback loops are, are literally what produce the um, what people call the harmony of nature. And those those negative feedback loops of for everything which is taken, something must also be returned, is, I think, a primary teaching of sustainability. And it's a teaching which we have in the Western society really forgotten. I mean, what are citizens called anymore? Not citizens, called consumers. That, that human beings have come to think of themselves as, as only those who take. But that's what leads us to these to the you know great extinction crisis to the to climate change crisis climate chaos because we have behaved as if our only responsibility is to take and not to give back where we always ask what more can we take from the earth and not what can we give to the earth 
and to me that's the real beauty of the indigenous teachings of of reciprocity is that it asks us to remember that we as human people have something to give in return for the many gifts that shower us um can you remember when you were a child when your feeling of reciprocity with the earth started what what happened at that moment i mean the awareness of it what a good question it it feels to me like such an intrinsic way of being i don't know that i could really point to a particular time of understanding that reciprocity unless it's related to berry picking <laughs> um, which I loved doing as a child and still pick a lot of berries um, so berry picking is to me a really tangible way of thinking about reciprocity that here the plants like the strawberry heartberry we call it just offers you that beautiful gift that, that sweet red little strawberry hiding under the leaves and you take it and it's a gift and you're grateful for it But the fact of the matter is, is that in taking that gift, you're also giving your own gift in that you're dispersing those seeds. You're carrying them to the next place where they can grow. And um, so just understanding that that there's always an exchange, that we live in a, an, in a gift economy in a sense, that everything that you take, you have to return something as well. And, and berries, I think, are really good teachers of that. Mm. I love that I learned, well, let me put it this way, when I went into the supermarket yesterday and I saw strawberry, I remembered that in the prayer you have in the book, you say strawberry is the leader of the fruits because she is the one that comes first in the season of the berries, So I saw the strawberry in a completely different way than just a strawberry. I'm so glad you said that, because to me that's really a key to transforming our relationship with the earth, is when we look at things, let's, let's stick with that strawberry, that it isn't a product, it isn't a commodity, it's not a thing. Mm. It, it is a gift from a living being. And mm. we as people, we know what to do when, when we get a gift, right? Um, we are, we're compelled to gratitude. It's just natural. And when someone gives us a gift, um, we want to give our gift in return. And so as we start thinking about strawberries, not as some things, mm. but as someone, mm. um, then uh, that opens the door to all kinds of um, Uh, really satisfying relationships with the world when the world is understood as peopled with other beings that offer us gifts that compel us to offer ours. I, I, it just makes me think, you know, I, I, if somebody gives me a gift, I, I don't want to say you shouldn't because there's so much joy involved in the reciprocity of the gift. And so I was just imagining... Um, getting the gift of strawberry and saying to the strawberry, oh, no, you shouldn't, and our whole world would collapse. <laughs> That's right. 
That's right. And instead, we we become living expressions of gratitude to those to those berries, to the water, to the animals, to everything. And it's a, a transformative way to see the world. I think. Yes, I mean gratitude is uh, a big part of your book, and so. I know it's asking for a wide subject, but would you speak to us about gratitude? To me, gratitude is often dismissed by people as kind of a weak response to some of the challenges that we face, that it's sometimes thought of as a perfunctory thank you. But I think it's really re powerful medicine because gratitude, especially in the context of, as you were referring to in the book, when I um, talk about the wonderful Thanksgiving address yes. or greetings to the natural world that my Haudenosaunee neighbors um, use every day, um, this orientation to gratitude makes you understand that you have enough that you have everything that you need. It's like our parents always told us to count your blessings. That's what it's about. It's about engendering that gratitude and saying, oh, I have water, I have air to breathe, I have that beautiful moon looking down at me at night. And you start to feel so rich and so full. And when you're in that mindset of feeling this incredible abundance from the natural world, um, it makes you more generous. It makes you more caring and compassionate to the beings who have bestowed those gifts onto you. I, I think it is not weak tea. It is really strong medicine and an important antidote to all of those uh, consuming pressures that tell us we're not enough, that we don't have enough, that we have to go buy something. And the things that we buy pretty rapidly, of course, convert the living world to cold, dead objects. And so the less we can buy and the more we can appreciate what we already have, that's a pretty radical act in a, in a consumer-driven society. So how can we live in the way of gratitude to the earth in our everyday life of going about our jobs and and things that are most of the time dissociated from the earth. How? I try to bridge that dissociation. You're so right. When you're looking at your food, which is all shrink-wrapped instead of picked from a field or, or a forest, I like to try to take the time to honor the beings represented inside that box or inside that plastic container and, and understand that these are gifts from the earth. And I think it makes you consume differently and it makes you consume less. It's like if some if a if a beloved friend is giving you something, you you take less, don't you? Because you honor them and you respect you respect them. You don't want to take too much. And and that kind of mindfulness about everything that we consume is, um, is acts as kind of a, a restraint on, on taking too much. Robin, how can we build the resilience for climate change 
as humans? I wish I knew the answer to this yeah. question. Because so much of what we are experiencing with this acceleration of climate change and the climate catastrophe which is upon us, I think that what we have to really remember is that nature is a moving target. The conditions under which we live, ecological conditions under which we live, mm. are dynamic. We're accelerating them, you know, beyond um, all reason at this point. But that what endures yes. is our relationship to the living world. That while the composition and the physical circumstances can change, our relationship can endure. A relationship built on gratitude, on reciprocity, on stewardship and caretaking. That's what we really have to cultivate. At the same time, of course, that we do everything, everything in our power to arrest the changes that we have set in motion. When we talk about resilience, I'm a little reluctant to do that because oftentimes people interpret that as throwing up your hands and saying, oh, well, this is going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. That's not true. You know, human people increment by increment, molecule of CO2 by molecule, um, have wrought this change in the atmosphere. And with enough um, acts and conviction, we can also change that. Um, but at the same time, we have to be resilient to it. And cultivating resilience, cultivating our um, and maintaining this, this web of, of healing relationship with the earth is never more important than now. And one of the ways that I really think about that in terms of climate change is in the climate change experienced by my own people. In the time of removal, you know, the Potawatomi people were first Great Lakes people. And we lived in northern Wisconsin on cold blue lakes up in the paper birch and maple nations, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, when our people were removed under federal Indian policy, we were forced to walk all the way to Kansas in a single winter. Mm -hmm. Talk about climate change, right? Wow. From Wisconsin to the grass, the dry grasslands of Kansas. And that's how I really picture climate change. All of the losses that are associated with leaving your homeland and um, leaving behind those maples and those birches and the loons and the bears to go to a place which is completely different to you. That's what we're doing to ourselves with climate change. We are removing ourselves from the homelands that we love. But then I also look at our people and say they were they suffered these terrible losses, but they also were resilient. And I think they were resilient because of their spirituality and because they had intact a relationship with the land. To say that whether I'm in the new home of, of Kansas or mm -hmm. in the ancestral lands of Wisconsin, the land is my teacher, the land is my provider, the land is my comfort, the land is my library. All of those those ways that the land supports us remain intact. So as we try to be resilient and adapt to climate change, I think it's so essential that we reawaken those skills 
of being able to learn from the land because that's where the great teachings of resilience lie. I've just had this uh, thought about uh, people who are quote-unquote called refugees moved from, uh, obliged to move from one place to another uh, and one talks about culture shock and maybe one could talk about land shock and how people who are moved from one region to another like your people have how they can by wars and how they can they can uh, reacquaint themselves with the land so yes because it's the land yeah. that's going to take care of you and, yeah. and sustain you in in ways physical as as well as spiritual it's interesting because um i would see that uh, i'm beginning to see that uh, Often, if we have to move, and we can, we might go to a land that's similar to um, to the place where we grew up. Like, I grew up uh, partly in the south of France, and I would say that the, the landscape here is similar. And uh, so I guess we might look for comfort of the same kind of land. So, perhaps you might tell us some stories of your students falling in love again with what they knew as children. What do you witness when your students go outside and become intimate with the land? I'm so glad you asked that question because it is... It is for me one of the joys of being a teacher is is watching that transformation with my students. And I have to say at the outset, I have I just have the best students. They're <laughs> so wonderful. They are they are idealistic. They sit on the edge of their seats trying to learn more because they love the world, because they want to save the world. That's what my students here at, at SUNY ESF are like. So I just love them. It's a it's a privilege to to be with them and you know how it is students really become the teachers. Mm-hmm. And the avenue that most of my students have chosen to express and engage with their love for the world is through science. And so there are students who, for the most part, really know their natural history. You know, they can name most of the plants and animals, and they know the biochemistry that's going on in the stream, and um, they're really very scientifically literate. But in many cases, they don't have what I would call kind of cultural fluency with the earth. And so what I love to see is that when their knowledge, their scientific knowledge of the of the living world meets a very intimate, uh, sustaining and reciprocal relationship um, of culture, they, they are so excited and, and, and their relationship to the earth becomes so much deeper. Um, one of the stories that I love to tell about this is mm-hmm. when... Um, when I teach my class up in the Adirondacks, we are we make things from um, birch bark. We make a lot of birch bark baskets and containers and boxes and so forth. And those birch bark boxes are sewn with spruce roots. And so we have to go out 
and dig those spruce roots. And we we learn about the ecology of the spruce and how to harvest in a in a good way that doesn't damage the roots and so forth. Um, but then the students go off by themselves to start doing their digging, and it's one of my favorite parts of the class because I just sort of wander through the woods or dig my own roots, and almost always the students who are off there with their hands in that good black humus under the spruces, they start to sing. And it's, to me, this beautiful, beautiful sound because, to me, it means they've, they're so happy and at peace because there they are with their hands in the earth. They're learning so much by following these roots through their underground pathways. They, they tell me that they feel so cared for. They look in the ground and they say, oh my gosh, these roots are laid out here almost as if I was meant to take them. And they have this sense so tangibly that the earth is taking care of them. And I think that's where the singing comes from. And after that day in the field, they are just changed. You know, they feel like they're walking through a world which is not only fascinating and interesting and complicated from a scientific perspective, but but they feel that exchange of love with the world, that the, that the love that they have for the world is reciprocated, mm. that the world loves them back, and it loves them mm. back in berries and in roots and in medicines and in all, all those wonderful ways. And when we feel, again, that not only do we love the world, but that the world loves us back, um, again, you walk so differently in the world. So you are not only a scientist and a botanist, but uh, you are able to show your students intimacy with the earth. And I would say that that's being a good mother, and you speak in your book about being a good mother, and I'd love it if you could talk to us about that. I feel that for myself, that is my most important job, is to be a good mother um, in the broadest kind of sense of that, not only a mother to my beautiful daughters, um, but a mother in all of those caring, nurturing kind of ways. And um, in, in a way, that's, it's, it's not so different from a relationship with, with one's students, I suppose, of, of, of guiding them and in turn being guided by them. But to me, it is, when I think about wanting to be a good mother, I have not only my own mother to thank for that, but our great mother, Shock McQuay, our mother of the earth. And what a teacher of care and generosity and sometimes hard lessons and, and discipline and inspiration. And I really, as I said at the outset, you know, that's almost how I identify myself as, as someone who has learned from plants, who has learned from Shock McQuay, from, from Mother Earth. And, um, and, and every single day, keep trying, trying to learn. Would you be willing to speak to us about the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment? 
that you have uh, co-created? I sure would. Um, I'm so excited to be part of this um, growing community of the Center for Native Peoples in the Environment, which is a collection of, of students, staff, and faculty members here at ESF who are really dedicated to the idea that a symbiosis or a real mutualism between scientific ways of knowing and indigenous ways of knowing can be a productive partnership in helping us care for the earth. And one of the things I would like to say about our, our small center, which is now about six years old or so, mm-hmm. is that it really stems from um, my own story as an undergraduate coming to college with, you know, madly in love with plants and wanting to um, deepen my knowledge of, of plants. And when I expressed to my freshman advisor, who was a botanist, what it is that I wanted to know about plants, I had questions about relationships with plants and the beauty of plants. And I was told that that's not science, mm-hmm. that scientists don't concern themselves with with relationship and, and with beauty. And that was really arresting for me. Um, and I know now, of course, that 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 is absolutely not true. Those are exactly the things that, that scientists concern themselves with, although perhaps not in the style of knowledge generation. But that's a, I wanted to tell you that story because what I experienced was this transition from the indigenous worldview based on relationship with plants to the scientific worldview when I got to the university and that these plants who I viewed as my teachers, my companions, these sources of beauty and knowledge, I was told were just things. They were just objects that we were to study um, and devoid of relationship. And um, that was deeply troubling to me, that shift in worldview. And so at the Center for Native Peoples in the Environment, what we're trying to do is to use the tools of Western science, but use them in the context of indigenous ways of knowing in this really holistic values and relationship-laden um, a way of thinking about, about the natural world. And so we're doing all kinds of interesting things from uh, revitalizing um, Native knowledge projects with, with youth, with, um, with uh, um, Indigenous partners, we're just trying to propose a graduate program so that some of these brilliant, brilliant young Native students who are coming out of tribal colleges, for example, can have a graduate program to go to that actually embraces traditional knowledge mm-hmm. and and um, try to tries to use traditional knowledge and indigenous philosophy to guide science. Um, there's there's a lot of different initiatives that we're involved in, but basically I would say that what we're trying to do is to indigenize the academy, and and to have these these views of the natural world, which um, Greg Kahete, a wonderful scholar from from your neck of the woods there in the southwest, refers to as native science, mm-hmm. and and how do we bring native science into the academy? How do we bring this knowledge which has been historically marginalized, how do we celebrate it and, and, and use it and create a welcoming place 
for Native and indige- for, for Indigenous scholars. Is there um, is there consciousness to nature? How do plants choose to be rooted where they are? Well, those are, to to my mind, um, quite different questions. Um, how do plants choose to be rooted where they are? Is in many cases the product of the fact that plants are incredibly individual beings, mm. individual in what they need from the world in terms of water and light and nutrients and neighbors and caretaking. So they're very individualistic. And some plants have ways to guide their seeds to the right place, as we know. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are some plants who just take potluck and and (laughs) spread their seeds on the wind and and hope that they land in a a good place. Um, So you know, quite literally, how, how, how do plants choose where to live? It's the match between the gifts of the earth and, the, and their particular needs mm-hmm. and, and, and gifts as well. Um, as to the question, do plants have consciousness? I think that is, it also depends, of course, on what one means by consciousness. But for my way of thinking, which is, which is, so deeply colored by um, indigenous ways of understanding plants as persons. Um, not as human persons, but as their own unique persons with different ways to be in the world. But to me, plants absolutely have their own intelligence, their own agency, their own knowledge. That's why in the, in the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, I really try to honor not only the knowledge of humans, be it scientific knowledge or indigenous knowledge, but the knowledge of the plants themselves. And after all, they are among the most ancient of beings. They've mm-hmm. been here on Earth for a very, very long time. They know what they're doing. They communicate it and express it in ways which are so different from our limited human ways, but just because they're not like humans in their capacity for expression doesn't mean that they're not expressive. It means that we have to have the humility and the imagination to go to understand how it is that that plants um, express their consciousness. Mm. There are, of course, some of these quite remarkable new studies being done by Dr. Monica Gagliano in Australia about plant cognition, about um, the ways in which that plants perceive the world and and respond to the world in ways that scientists had always said were impossible because plants don't have the same neurological equipment that, Mm -hmm. that animals do. No, they have their own ways. They have their own ways of being, and um, we just haven't figured them out yet. And perhaps my last question before closing would be, uh, your daughters grew up in, in, in intimacy with the earth. How do they see the future? My daughters did have 
the privilege of, of growing up with plant and animal teachers all around them. And I'm so proud to say that both of them are, are so... Um, both of them, to me, both of my daughters are reflective of the generosity that they have learned from the earth. Both of them are such mm-hmm. caring and generous beings that I can't help but think that they learned it by berry picking. Mm-hmm. And I think both of my daughters understand the wounds of the world, mm-hmm. but they're both engaged in healing those wounds as well. I like to think that they they understand reciprocity that they have been showered with with the gifts of 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 their family their communities and of the earth and they are um engaged in reciprocating those gifts and i think it is that reciprocity that helps us move forward and understand that healing of the earth and healing of our relationship to earth to the earth is the most important thing that we can do Robin Kimmerer, I want to thank you for your generosity of time and words and feeling and just ask you, what would you like to say in closing? Hmm. I would want to encourage your listeners who I know love the world and are troubled by what is befalling our plant and animal relatives and say that it is, I think it's so important that each of us ask ourselves the question about the natural world. What is it that we love too much to lose? It might be berries, it might be a pond, it might be a little meadow, it might be a bench in a park. And when we ask ourselves, what do we love about the earth? Too much to lose. And then say, how will I use my gifts to protect and defend that place? Thank you so, so very much for being with us. Thank you, Joanna. It's been a delight. Oh, good.